This is the AI Artifacts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Brian Warmoth, with Sarah Luger, PhD, and we are back again to go beyond the hype, under the hood, and into the fray to see what's happening in AI this week. Hello and welcome back. I hope you all had a wonderful two weeks without our lovely voices in your feed, but we've been thinking, we've been reading, and we've been talking. Sarah, it's good to talk to you again for the AI Artifacts podcast. Brian, always a pleasure. Yeah. Let's dig into this. Well, what happened in the intervening weeks? Yeah, well, I hope I hope you all had a chance to see on AIartifacts.net what we were reading in the meantime. There was some mm-hmm. continuing drama with OpenAI, who we'll talk about more in the news today. Go figure. This is just, they've, yep. they've <laughs> occupied a large segment of the discourse in the last few months. They'll probably continue to be there. Uh, they're still working on their board. They There has been criticism mm-hmm. from other parties who would like to see them diversify and add more perspectives to their board. I'm sure you've been following that discussion, yeah. Sarah. Yeah, there's also, I mean, I don't think that we're talking about OpenAI too much. I'm actually excited that there are still, I, I would still consider them a new player mm-hmm. in the uh, hyperscaler realm. And so it's fun to, to just see a, no- a novel company attack things in a different way. Yes, they need to have more perspectives on the board. But I think that after the the last couple months of, of drama, I, I'm kind of wondering if maybe they just need a little bit of time to get this right. They had low, we didn't hear much at all out of the board. It seemed like a company that was really doing great stuff very quickly. And then there was just a bunch of drama. So perhaps, you know, this needs to be uh, shook out a bit. I think, I'm, I think, I'm if, nothing, I think if nothing else is true, that's undeniable. <laughs> I mean, stuff hit the fan very fast with a lot of people yeah. who had very yeah. different perspectives on things. And as you said, it's shaking out. And right now we're seeing where things settle. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get into the breaking news. Yeah. Well, breaking as of this week, but it's something that interested me yeah. about, and this involves open AI, coincidentally, once again. OpenAI, it was announced, reached a new deal with Axel Springer, which is a major owner of media properties. They own, notably in the US, Politico and Insider, which publishes the the Business Insider content that all you newsreaders out there are familiar Mm -hmm. with. And then they they have a lot of other properties that are are known well in in Europe. But what they've done, uh, and I'm reading from Axios here, which had the had this news from Sarah Fisher reporting. She said, ChatGBT parent OpenAI has struck a deal with Axel Springer, parent of a, to a slew of German and US media outlets to help, quote unquote, help provide people with new ways to access quality real-time news content through our AI tools. So the, I'll summarize part of this and I'll tell you why it's, why it's interesting to me. So essentially, you know, a lot of places have put up the gates in the code on their websites to keep these LLMs from training off of their website content from scrapes. And early on, people started talking about whether or not this would be a revenue opportunity for, if you're a company like the New York Times, or you are Reddit, and you have these wealths of, you know, natural discussions and voices and opinions and news and all the things that represent organic chat. Yeah, organic chat. People speaking as they actually communicate as opposed to more stilted other types of language. Yeah, that the Reddit 
Reddit is super valuable. <laughs> but yes, yeah. so if you have these different uh, communities or websites that host communities, how do you create, how do you stop being scraped but then also are you trying to build your own well i wanted to bring this up with you there's two points because there's two weaknesses one if you're you're training your llm you need content and lots and lots of content that represents how people actually do talk to make your technology estimate and represent communication in a way that's closer to that as as close as possible but two you know this problem we've talked about in the past of the limitations on time because the, you know, these, these LMs are not great about speaking about real time events and things that have just happened. And now they're going to get access to all of this content that is coming out on a daily basis with new and evolving facts and statistics and researched things. It's relevant information. It has some level, uh, (laughs) some, some high level of expectation of editorial quality in terms of fact checking Mm -hmm. and and what's there. So, you know, I mean, let's, let's start there. What, how would you talk about the value of this deal to open AI? And then I want to get into the value to the media company too. Yeah. So as I said earlier, I think it's interesting that open AI is a player in the market because they are doing things a little bit differently than some of these hyperscalers. And, you know, I look forward to them figuring out their board and that the board dynamic with it being a nonprofit. And here they have done perhaps the opposite of what Google and Meta did with news mm. and Google also with books. I'm curious right? to say why you so say opposite. Google, I want to hear this. Because, because those guys. Okay. So initially mm. OpenAI scraped everything. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of like innovation waits for no man. You know, they were very much in that model and come at me. And so some mm-hmm. people have uh, approached them with lawsuits, mm-hmm. but those are, are still being worked out. Mm-hmm. But Google and Meta did this for years before news organizations came to them and said, hey, this is illegal. You're, mm-hmm. you're using my content without consent and I'm not getting any mm-hmm. financial uh pay for this, you know, there's no, there's no reciprocity financially, Mm -hmm. right? And that happened in parallel with, over the last 15 years, a complete change, maybe even 20, complete change in the value of reporting, media. Mm. We just, I view it favorably, you view it favorably, but the the average person is not willing to pay for news content. I think yeah. that that's a given. Uh, I, I'll, I'll stand up and, and add some nuance to that. Like, yes, I think it's favorable in cases where the companies are able to to execute a business model that succeeds in people paying them for the content because that is a sustainable business yeah. model that you can you can do. What's been a problem is like the devaluing of the free content when the ad business has just gone through these. You know, it's, it's yeah. been absorbed by Google and Facebook or Google and Meta, right? Yeah. Exactly. That's that's yeah. a that's the subtlety there. Is that the newspapers that. and the magazines would would get that ad mm-hmm. revenue, and so then that we have a, a middle layer that's that's not making that financially available yeah. to to the actual content makers. So when I say opposite, I'm thinking OpenAI looked at Axel Springer and said, "Oh, we are now in a world where everyone knows that we're scraping." And we need to continue to have high quality data that is intentional and authored by humans to 
continue to refine and improve our large language model data set, right? The data they're using to train. So that's why I think this was good for OpenAI is that they are saying, we will do what we need to do to have some resources that are not tainted, like mm -hmm. the internet is now tainted for scrapes because it has generated data mm -hmm. on it. Well, I, you know, I see that and I, it's hard for me to see a downside to open AIs for open AI in doing this deal. I, I'm, I'm really curious yeah. about a few things and there, there's clearly great things happening here, at least in the short term, I think for the Axel Springer properties, right? The, the first thing that comes to mind is like, like you said, it's a revenue opportunity and it's a revenue opportunity, revenue opportunity mm -hmm in an industry that needs them, frankly, it needs them all over the place. Um, yeah. They need more revenue options so they don't become overly dependent on one. Exactly. Um, we don't know the financial terms of this deal. So it's not, we don't have a lot of visibility into the details there. Yeah. It also makes me excited to see attribution being ma made a part of this. So Agreed. As, as they're Agreed. using this information, they're going to be delivering results and answers to people and citing content and even in cases where it's paywalled which you know as a person who works in media that makes that makes my heart very happy to see that attribution is happening yeah. because in a lot of these responses it it is not in many cases been clear if they're citing a source specifically or yeah. generally you know if was something exclusively broken by one company because for me when I'm doing research just like any academic or journalist you want to know who that fact originated with, you know, what is the provenance of this, Definitely. this information? And that's, that's a good thing for everybody here. And hopefully people who will discover it, the great reporting that Politico or whoever else is doing that leads to this being made available. Right. It is. And it also mitigates one of the main concerns of, of the users, which is how do I trust the output of this LLM? Mm -hmm. Right. It is, it, the chat GPT is an entertainment tool. There's a lot of ways that the quality level of its output has really forced um, chatbot uh, providers and companies that have automated interactions on their websites to say, hey, we can use this level of naturalness. Mm -hmm. But there's a very different realm to have a customer support bot that has a very narrow use case. And then to bring in the sorts of questions that we had, we would all like to get, which is factual, this has been vetted, and having uh, attribution really yeah. helps with that. Mm -hmm. I also wonder if, if there were mumblings, rumors that maybe a competitor to OpenAI was finding alignment with these content producers. Because I would love to know the answer to that producer. and what the market is yeah. if they do they have choices in this case? I would assume they do because you know yeah. Google or Amazon or Meta all have interests in this. Anthropic, anthropic, sure. Yeah. Sure. I I wonder if there's a, a, a marketplace where all of these content folks are saying, "Look, we can we can sue you. We can you know if we can't, we've looked into how much it costs to build our own LLM for." maybe getting rid of the blank page mm -hmm. problem. So generating some content for their own use cases, maybe they did that mm -hmm. analysis and said, if you can't beat them, join them. And these are the, these are the folks to join. Let's, let's get into hypothetical for a second. 
because it's related to this. One thing I wondered months ago was if we might see a scenario where multiple publishers would get together and form some sort of negotiating block to try to yeah. figure this stuff out with different LLMs. And I don't think that's really happened yet, but this is this is definitely a a deal that other publishers are going to watch. Let me let me say my biggest concern with this and this is more in the long term, but from the perspective of seeing how a lot of media companies got in deep with Facebook and Twitter as, as, as the most notable social outlets for publishing and finding deals to circulate and find audience for their news and get into people's feeds, they, they lost in the long term because they ended up getting used to train the feed algorithms and these social channels yeah. kind of lost interest in news, honestly. And for me, that actually has made my feeds less interesting to me over time. Because I, I I used to really value them more for that source as a as a discovery source, but what I wonder about here is is this going to pay off and be a long term opportunity for Axel Springer, or at some point are they going to help to end up training a competitor who's going to know what they do and be able to do it better than them because they're able to use all of this? I, I don't know about that, but it would be my number one worry. But at the same time. If you know you've got short-term revenue and that's a win you can get now from a business perspective, I also understand making that choice and then figuring out if the other thing is a battle you have to fight later. So that's the question on my mind to watch from this yeah. in the long term. You know, because it's it's frankly, they're not a media, OpenAI is not a media company. They're a tech company with their own business interests and long-term goals and need to probably need to grow. So at some point, I wonder if those things don't eventually come, come, come be, end up being at odds with Axel Springer's goals, but we don't know that yet. Well, and what type of, what type of company is Axel Springer? So this is a large mm -hmm. company that does business and financial news for the It has a part. pretty good commitment so, to quality. And I, you know, I think that that should be. Oh, oh, very. Yeah. yeah. I I'm, I'm that, that is not debated yeah. here, but if this, if this partnership is made, what are, why these guys first? Yeah. So, you know, why not good housekeeping? Mm -hmm. Why not? So yeah. what are the other realms? Mm -hmm. This is very interesting because this speaks to the future audience, mm -hmm. which is um, enterprise users asking, perhaps mm -hmm. doing analyst reports, yeah. right? So, so this is considered valuable data, but also it makes me think about in the next few months, who are the other companies that are going to join forces mm -hmm. and what... And will there be space for the little guy? Because Google and Meta have successfully either not had to pay for the content or said, hey, we're moving on. Mm -hmm. You know, Meta had said with conflict in in Europe and I believe Canada, like they were willing to drop news yeah. content completely. So yeah. they have a lot of these companies have a lot of power. And it's interesting that the, the, the tech OpenAI mm -hmm. is the tech player. We're going to see. We're going to see how much power. Yeah, because I mean, this this is this underscores yeah, what I just said, yeah. right? Like, we're going to see. Days. Yeah, we're going to see if this is like social and search all over again. Is this the new fight for media companies? It might be. We'll see. Let's. I'll hit yeah. one more short thing. I don't know if you saw the breaking news yesterday, which came from the information, which was that OpenAI has been in talks with Snapchat, its parent company, Snap which makes smart glasses about using 
OpenAI's new object recognition software, which is something that, yeah. well, I don't know if the software itself is new, but it's it's been in public use for the first time. And that, that's been in a lot of social feeds this week. So it follows an announcement that ChatGPT was going to be powering Snapchat lenses. Uh, that, that announcement was from November. I think this comes ahead of a lot of renewed attention on AR and wearable technology in 2024 with Apple's Vision Pro launching. You know, Meta's got its own glasses from Ray-Ban. So what do you think about this? I think this is really interesting. You and I have both experimented with the Snap glasses yeah. in the past. I had a pair you know, of Google glasses back in the day, was... too. Ooh, I sold I sold them ooh. to somebody uh, over eBay a while back, I think it was. But yeah, they were fun <laughs> while they lasted. That sounds like the natural genesis, the genesis and then narrative completion of Google glasses. Yeah. Um, the snap glasses were fun. I could see them being a really, and they were charmingly marketed. You could get them in like a vending machine. Mm-hmm. They went for a different market than I think the, what what's still on the table mm-hmm. here. And you and I have also seen a lot of AR glasses and headsets being used for industrial yeah. applications. And so what I think is super interesting here is what's the enterprise play? Right. So we want to have like, if the, is a key consumer an office worker, mm-hmm. you know, is this to who's, who, what is this object recognition use case? I think this is a fascinating move. Yeah. And yeah, we have seen with the, the humane AI, there's, you know, wearables are back. Okay. Time for two truths and lay AI. For anybody listening to this is their first episode of the AI artifacts podcast. Each week I give Sarah three options to choose from. Two of them are real news articles, and one of them has just been made up almost entirely by ChatGPT in most cases. But some sometimes I, I make a few tweaks just to make things a little bit more believable when I see these. Are you ready for this week? I think you're up by two right now. You have a, a two-win spread for me to beat. Yeah, I'm, I know that you're, after my early successes, mm-hmm. you're trying to... Uh, yeah, I know you're focused on beating me and I'm just, thank you for your creativity because this is a lot of fun on my, I don't want to say I'm not competitive, but I'm just, I'm upbeat and happy. Thank you, Brian. Bring it. Okay. All right. Here's number one. Will I am's WizKid Wonderbot Christmas hit raises parental concerns. This holiday season, the talk of the town is Will I am's new tech toy. The WizKid Wonderbot, a cutting-edge robot for kids that blends JAT-GBT technology with playtime. However, parents are grappling with a mix of excitement and unease. Wonderbot's promise of dynamic conversations and educational engagement has thrust it into the spotlight. Now, questions linger about the impact on AI, excuse me, the impact of AI on childhood innocence. With its sleek design and ability to answer Ooh. questions, tell stories, and foster imaginative play, WizKid Wonderbot tops every child's witch list right now, but as parents navigate this festive shopping frenzy, they face a dilemma, embrace the tech-infused joy, or worry about the uncharted territory where childhood and artificial intelligence converge. All right. I'm going to leave that one there as the opening. Wow. Uh, Will, I am. I'm also not Googling. I'm, I'm, he sees my hands. Oh, don't. There's no oh, Googling yeah, happening. I don't. I, I, that makes no, sense. I'm not. I mean, I feel I feel like on my back foot because I don't have kids. And so now I'm like, oh, my God, what is the toy of, of 
the season. But please continue. Get ready for the next one. We're going to enjoy this. Number two. Toy startup Curio launches three AI-powered plush toys, including a $99 one called Grok that uses OpenAI's tech to converse with kids and are voiced by Grimes. Grimes released an interactive artificial intelligence-powered toy named Grok on Thursday, but insists it was purely coincidental that Elon Musk's XAI startup released a chatbot also named Grok last month. Trademark filings revealed that Grimes got to the name first, as Curio, the toy company behind Grok, requested to trademark the name on September 12th, over a month before XAI's October 23rd filing with the United States Patent and Trademark Office. All right. So there's number two. That's a good one. Number It hits all the it hits all the buzzwords. <laughs> Plushy. Chat GPT. We should talk. Grok. Man, I'm glad we we're talking. I, I I had the biggest conversation about plushies the other day. There's anyway, I, I want to get derailed, but let's go let's go number three. All right. I mean that is an enticing that is an enticing way to start a conversation. But yes, let's move on. Uh, number three. AI animated robot pets. Don't eat pet food or want treats. One robotic dog responds to more than 35 voice commands and servos to run, flip, and otherwise caper. However, the Robo Rovers aren't cuddly yet. Robots have already begun replacing flesh and blood fur babies. Synthetic pets help those who couldn't otherwise have a furry companion. Ultimate Pet Nutrition sponsored Pets for Vets a nonprofit organization that finds homes for dogs and cats in shelters with U.S. Armed Forces veterans. Not all those pets were biological, though. Pets for Vets has provided dozens of robotic dogs and cats for veterans whose circumstances preclude a live pet. The pets provide comfort, companionship, and fun, Anne Black, president of Pets for Vets board of directors, said in a previous pet food industry article. Because they are interactive, they engage the veteran similarly to a live animal. They help calm anxiety and soothe in stressful situations. So I'll leave it there. Awesome. What do you, okay, so I, I really I like this slight, spread. This is, I, I, it's like getting a good yeah. plate, you know, a good good table setting. I feel like these were these all went together very well yeah. this week. Three lovely courses. Yes. Mm. Okay, I have a slight advantage this week. I actually followed the Curio Grok. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's true. I know that's true because I was laughing at the fact that that Grimes got the the trademark before her ex. So that was a little bit of a, you know, this is what happens when you fire your PR department. You know, you don't, you need some support staff to to make sure everything is filed properly. Yeah. So I know that that is actually true, okay. which You've is taken number two off crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, Will I Am always seems to. I mean, what is he? He's like a, a media personality. He always seems to be uh, figuring out the zeitgeist. Right. Mm-hmm. That's good for him. I, I think that that is the fake story because I've, when I was in grad school, I did outreach to schools with Sony robotic dogs and taught grade schoolers how to program them. And I think that this is a great use case. And yes, having a pet and historically having pets, an animal that uses electricity as opposed to food 
is great financially, although nothing really tops a, a pet. That being said, for all of our listeners, my cat did chase a mouse inside the house last night, and I am not sure if it's out. <laughs> so I don't see a robotic. <laughs> All right. So you're picking Will. All I of am. my you're... furniture is away from. I'm picking Will. I am. I... All of my furniture is away from the walls, just in case there's a mouse in the house. I'm like, where are you, mouse? Oh yeah, Godspeed. <laughs> I haven't been in that situation for That's... a very long time. Yeah, uh, not since an old apartment I lived in a long That's time. That's okay. I, I hope. Wow, we've really covered everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let yeah, me get I'm back to your answer. One. Will I am? Which mm-hmm. I commend and respect once again because Will I am was the fake story made up this week. I try. I mean, but that's both totally believable. I, he's always up to some. He's cool had so hygiene. many. I should have brought up a list of the different tech products that Will I Am has been attached to over the years. And and let me tell you what I did in this one. So I got ChatGPT to generate this story about a fake toy for the holidays that was popular but controversial. And then I actually just shoehorned in Will I Am to the whole story because I was like, you know what? This doesn't seem like a compelling option for me to use this week. But I feel like if I put Will I Am's name on here, it could cross the threshold. Totally, right, and it, that was totally reasonable. I only had the advantage because I'd help I'd help kids learn programming with these Sony dogs. They're really fun. Yeah, and let me say for the pure purpose of citation, yeah. the second one, the headline came from Tech Meme, but it's from the New York Post coverage. Which you know, I, I figured also going to the New York Post might give me an edge and making it sound less believable. And then the third one came from petfoodindustry.com. Yeah. So we'll put the links up to wow. these in the show notes. So Sarah, you and I already recorded wow. a wonderful <laughs> interview for this week and I'm going to send everybody over to that right now. Please enjoy. Sarah, would you like to introduce the wonderful guest that we have this week? I would love to. Kurt Bollicker has a PhD from UT Austin. He studied old school neural networks in grad school. He has built search engines and large public databases, and he became a true believer in long-term thinking, such as the Long Now Foundations. He is going to be such a fantastic guest because he is currently director of engineering at ML Commons, which we will dig deeper into. But Over the past few years, you know, he's worked as a technical director at Internet Archive. He worked with emerging data annotation and data science innovation at Stitch Fix. And it is with great pleasure that I introduce Kurt Bollicker to our chat. Welcome, Kurt. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Brian. Hey, we're really excited to have you. Uh, You know, you're the first person I've met who worked at the Internet Archive. It's on my short list of things, places I've still not visited personally in San Francisco, but it's it's like always right there in terms of something I want to do next month perpetually. Oh, it's great. It's in a church. This yeah. is I've seen the pictures. It looks amazing. I've used it. I've used the services so many times that it, it feels predestined, but it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for coming on. It looks like the Jefferson Airplane building. It's it's quite it's it's really beautiful. Highly suggest. All right, Kurt. Wonderful institution. Wonderful. I'm glad that you've supported it in the past. And that dovetails with your current work in data evaluation and AI safety. So can you tell me about your journey as a technologist and 
how that journey has led you to working on AI data sets and AI system evaluation. And I ask because you and I have worked on rigorous evaluation of AI systems over the past seven years or so. And I, I, your journey fascinated me then, and I'd love to hear more about where you see yourself now. All right. Thanks, Sarah. There's really two pieces to that. There's data sets and there's rigorous evaluation. Um, so a bit about data sets. When I was in grad school, you know, I was ABD and I needed a little break. So I took a, a summer internship at uh, the NEC Research Institute. Uh, it was an old school industry research facility. They were the folks that slowed light down to 17 miles an hour long ago, if you remember. What I did there was end up building an early search engine about a year before Google was founded called Sightseer. And it was a search engine for computer science literature. And eventually over the years, you know, the software got swapped out multiple times, but the data set kept growing. And what I learned from that is that the data that you curate, the data that you gather tends to maintain its value. It tends to increase in value, whereas software is a lot more ephemeral. And given that, I realized that, okay, where we really need to focus our time is on the, the data set itself. So in Sightseer, I built a little bit of old school AI, being able to make predictions about like, if you chose a bunch of papers of, of interest, that it would predict new papers that you might be interested in as they were published and captured by the crawler. But it, you know, it turns out that those algorithms, of course, also ephemeral, they shift over time. And over the years, really decades at this point, that data set has been used a bunch of times by a lot of researchers and continues to grow in the hands of Penn State. But then that brings us to rigorous evaluation, which I didn't really think much about because starting in the 2000s, there was a little bit of a, a lull in interest in AI, just slow growth of old school machine learning algorithms. But then about 10, 11 years ago, we had ImageNet in the beginnings of deep learning. And suddenly it was doing magical things. There, was, there were a lot of parlor tricks that showed up on YouTube and what became a bunch of the social networks. And suddenly people were entranced by all these amazing things that they saw and heard. But if you looked at it closely, you realize, wow, these are just parlor tricks. And even back then, a tiny, tiny perturbations, tiny adversarial actions could make these things that seem to work amazingly well just fail in an unpredictable fashion. And so that did not slow down the hype. It did not slow down investment and money kept pouring in. And so I suddenly, well, not suddenly, but we'll say over years, started to realize well, there's a lot of hype. There's still some amazing science being done. There's a lot of advancement being done, but there's so much hype and so much money pouring in. It's very hard to tell the hype apart from actual value, actual advancement. And so I realized, well, if I'm going to do, if, you know, suddenly deep learning made everything interesting again, but if I'm going to get into it, I need to understand it. I need to be able to discriminate between reality and hype. It needs to be Do you tested, feel like you've like been science. able to do that in practice, Kurt? <laughs> Well, not as well as I would like. It's, you know, usually end up using proxies about what problems are thing, people going to tackle and <laughs> how is it funded? That often ends up being a better indicator than um, what the, the exact algorithm is. Because even if there's real advancement, 
it might be hyped in such a way or presented in such a way that is not representative of that value and in fact is representative of something else just because that something else is more lucrative. And has some key terms that and are... has, has the right buzzwords, yes. Those <laughs> yes. are important important for for accumulation of, of attention and money. So you you looked, you know, over the past few years at data and data comparison as part of the scientific method. You know, how can we how can we be rigorous and evaluate these new hyped technologies if we can't compare them? And uh, this is this is fascinating, but this is something that the U.S. government has invested some time in with NIST, National Institute for uh, Standards Technology, and work done by competitions. You know, this is pre-Kaggle competitions, but actual competitions that uh, universities and research groups would would participate in to see who had the best uh, information retrieval system. And and this went on for for many years in the the nineties and the and the oddies and the teens, but that has really become less popular. Do you have any insight on on why there's kind of this? Is it? Oh, let me put it another way. Do you think that the hype is at a spot where we don't need computer scientists? Don't follow these evaluations as closely. There's a lot of there's a lot of un- questions to unpack there. Yeah. So, all right. so <laughs> pick one so, or two. Yeah, let's go. Let's go to first principles and then see what came from that. So the reality is gold standard for evaluation of any AI system, because these systems are are meant to mimic people's either individual collective decision making, prediction, generation. And so people, because people are the ones going to be perceiving it or acting on it, people are still the gold standard for evaluation. And in, in either to prompt or interact with these systems, as well as actually make decisions about the, the output. The problem with that is that while you can do things by with training, with redundancy, you can you know, combine people together to make them reliable over time in many cases. However, what you cannot do is make them cheap or fast. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with a situation where, well, it'd be great to evaluate the system. It's very important, but I do not have the $100,000 it's going to take to do that. So what people have done instead is they've done the traditional AI thing of proxy of maybe have human labeled, say, test samples in the case of a supervised trained machine learning model and use those tests, those labeled samples as a proxy for human judgment. Um, And that's much cheaper because then you can use that, build lots of different models, use the same training and test sets, and then do comparison. that is great, and that worked in the old days uh, reasonably well. But a lot of problems have you know, occurred that have always been there, but have been exacerbated in the new world order. And that is the fact that it's much faster and easier now to essentially contaminate your training set. Even if researchers try to keep it clean, suddenly the test set, any test set that's out there, will get you know, will somehow get end up getting incorporated into the training set. Like I said, even if there's no attempt to do that, simply, oh, let's keep changing the algorithm until the testing works well. Well, what you're essentially doing, you do that enough 
and you're essentially, you know, doing reinforcement learning and inadvertently, you know, inadvertently. <laughs> yeah. And, and you end up, you know, gaming the test set. And so given that then suddenly, well, somebody's come up with a new model and there's, and then there's no way, there's absolutely no way to judge it. And yet, and, yeah. And so that's the cutting edge right now. It's yeah. Like how and it overfits. It overfits. So I'm following you correctly. I think if I, if I understand you correctly, the what you're saying is you have the difference between a system actually getting better and smarter, more effective on its own versus just getting better at mimicking the results that have been put in and front of it, right? That is, that is exactly it. Because yeah. you're not, if you're testing on real people, you, it's very hard to gain. If you're testing on one of these static proxies that was originally generated from people, but is not changing, then you, that the gaming can, can occur without even realizing it. There's a, and so we have this conundrum where it's too expensive to use people everywhere. The quality of just using a static, you know, automated evaluation, the quality is too low. So it's an active area of research of how to get the quality of human evaluation combined with the cost efficiency and engineering speed of automated evaluation. That can mean like training models to mimic people in that that's, that's a thing, or you constantly update your set. So maybe you try to keep your test set secret and then you every once in a while, once a month, once a quarter, once a year, you have to update it to a new one. And so you have this season's version of the test set. There's there's a lot of, like I said, it's an active area of research. People, there is no perfect best answer, but what is believed and what is understood is that we do, if we, we, if we want to trust AI systems, we do have to solve this problem. Let me ask Thank what you, your Kurt. level of trust is like. Kurt in the AI systems that you have used. I mean, I, I, this, I'd like to know from like your standpoint, when you sit down to use an LLM or test it out, what are the thought processes going on in your head and the results that you see and your own evaluations of the, the, these tools? So there's two kinds of trust, trust of intention mm-hmm. and trust of competence. Let's like put that. trust of intention aside for the moment and mm-hmm. That we do not have the evil AI trying to take over and destroy us all. That's the that's a different discussion. Sure. But so we focus on trust of competence, and it depends on you know. And, and let me let me. There's there's two classes of systems we need to think about, and there's these supervised, specialized, trained models like the neural networks to predict someone's uh, whether someone is worthy you know, is credit worthy for a loan. That would mm-hmm. be that side. And then the other is the latest hotness of generative AI, specific, in particular, large language models that generate text based on props. Mm-hmm. And so for old school supervised, super, supervised machine learning models, the question is, did you cover everything? Does the test set that you work with reflect what's in reality? And again, bring this full circle, that brings it back to the data. So you can train with algorithms, but if you don't trust the data, you're not going to trust the model. Then there, the, so generative AI has that same problem. Can you trust the data? There's a lot of falsehoods in the data and a lot of fiction. So you may not trust the data, but then generative AI also has uh, the, the added complication 
of being general purpose. And so it is always going to take an attempt to answer, make an attempt to answer. And it doesn't have any sense of its own accuracy. And in fact, it's not even clear what accuracy means or correctness means. So you're not even sure what you're trusting. If you would like a generative model, an LLM, to generate entertaining fiction, I have very high trust that it can do that effectively. If you would like it to suggest a medical, the best medical procedure for your injury, I would trust it a lot less. Why is that? Well, there's, uh, while there's probably medical advice, if it's going to pick up medical advice from Reddit and the Wikipedia and a bunch of random, you know, websites is and that's essentially, that's where the knowledge is coming from. And do you trust that data? Mm-hmm. Data and, is primary. Uh, I thought, I thought is you it? were just going to say that the, the, the risk reward of the entire process has in dramatically more weight in the latter. Oh, uh, well, well, that's all, but that's, that's true everywhere. You know, if you're, if you're literally dying from a bullet wound and no one's going to get to you in the next five minutes and you need to deal with it and you have no other choices, then sure, use an LLM because you're going to die otherwise. So the risk reward is very, very high. So, you know, you, you should, you know, you, you, you have to do it. But what, what it does, what you, what you, you make a valid point and it calls into play of, as opposed to going to a doctor or another professional who, which ha- who has the knowledge and is well-trained, mm-hmm. if you're just doing it out of convenience, then understand you're going to get what you pay for. So I'd like to note that, you know, one that, that Kurt is bringing up a, a very good point. And one of the pushbacks on LLMs is this confidence, this meta confidence. So you have an LLM generate a story for you and you're like, oh my goodness, that's a great story. It's as if a human wrote it. But then when you need it for something that is fact-based or has a time element, you should not use the same confidence. And if you think about a library, a library has both a fiction and a nonfiction section. Nonfiction, there's some great pieces that you can check out. Fiction, they might have the same time bias, that they might just be temporarily out of date. They do not, they're not relevant to the circumstance you're in, and they require a level of skill that would allow a broader and also more specific use case, perhaps a human in the loop. I'm sorry about your your gunshot metaphor, but I I think that one might be sticking. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> it's also worth calling out to pull back to history. There was a time when AI predates machine learning. Most people don't think about that, you know. Uh, back when we built... What, what, what is the popular genesis point for machine learning properly considered genesis point for that I mean, what is that back to there's er, mid early you know early 20th century there's like i i i'm not going to claim to know the beginning of it good a you good know. 70 years have, mm-hmm. have yeah elapsed. there's there's the McCar- the mccarthy group i think was in the 50s they were the first ones to get together and try and establish it i think as a science Mm-hmm. And they, they had principles. And in those early days, what we would, you know, what they were thinking of as AI were a bunch of handcrafted heuristics. 
Now, yeah. given the compute power of the day and their their the theory of the day, the math of the day around this, I mean, that was breakthrough. It was a huge advance. And it and it brought in, you know, brought into the world what we would now call the world of symbolic AI, like explicit mm -hmm. logic and provability and reasoning systems and explicit assertions. Uh, and so, but the interesting thing is that system of AI, which was not learnable, it did not learn from examples, everything was handcrafted. And there's even a really large group, Doug Lanat from, I spent like 30, 35 years uh, building a system called Syc, CYC, that was a very large handcrafted, hand assembled collection of facts about the world and reasoning rules. And the thought was if they just reached a critical mass that it would know enough about enough things that it could start to read a newspaper and reason about it. Now, LLMs appear to do that now and Psych never was able to get that far. It still exists. It's still being used in say the medical field for some specialized applications. So it never died, but it failed to be the general purpose AI that we thought it would be. However, that era of AI was capable of doing some things that LLMs struggle with right now is that these were handcrafted facts. So they were kind of this reliable source of truth. You could go to them and you'd say, yep, this is true. You know exactly when Isaac Asimov was born. There's a, a fact in the system and you can go check it. The other thing that it was true is that since these were rules and facts that accumulated, it updated. So as long as the rule set and the reasoning set continued to grow, you could be up to the day, up to the minute. So there was not this training cycle that LLMs have right now. And then the last thing is all the stuff was explicit. So you could explain everything. You could understand why do you believe that? Something that LLMs also struggle with. It was transparent. You could was say, I understand the rationale because I can see the decision tree that led to this choice. And that was really valuable in the early, you know, heavily logic-based years because folks were trying to figure out what are the semantics. And if we look at cognitive science or computational linguistics, there's a lot of reflection upon, you know, are we decoding a language? And, and what is the meaning behind a word? What is the relationship? of those words in a sentence. And so along with psych, there, from a language perspective, there was frame net, word net, verb net, a lot of very proscribed approaches to mapping out the world and they needed to be maintained. But this approach, Kurt, am I wrong, could be interpreted as reinforcement learning today when it is married with an LLM. So there's, this brings up an inter interesting point. I, I, if you're going to look about where things are going in the future, there's, we're seeing now it's inevitable that, you know, we, we see that LLMs are kind of plateauing right now in their base capability. A few weeks ago, OpenAI announced a whole new set of advancements and that included whatever their GPT-4 Turbo, which tellingly is actually slower than GPT-4. 
And, <laughs> and they said, we were going to increase the size of the context window, the prompt window. And that's just like saying we have a bigger engine in our car and got a Hemi. Yeah. And they, and they reduced the price. We're selling it at a bargain. And they also, so those were the core advancements. What they actually offered that was a value was the beginnings of a whole ecosystem of how to use it effectively. So what that says is that the LLMs are not in a place where they are, they're, they're, I mean, that doesn't say that, you know, the new Google Gemini or some of the other competitors might have a breakthrough because they might. But what it says is it's no longer as easy as it used to be. And if people are going to extract value, they need to think about it a little more practically. And so one of the predictions I'm going to make is that that systems that use LLMs, they will, LLMs will not be the center of the entire universe. What they will do is be a very important component. And in fact, maybe the interface for almost for many, many, many things, if not everything. But behind the scenes, we're going to have a lot of old school systems. We're going to have neural networks that are trained to do specific tasks and can make predictions. We're going to have systems of rules and logic and old school symbolic AI. And these combination hybrid systems, there's no universal way to do them, to build them together right now. This, that is like the, the cutting edge. And you see, if you're going to build a you know customer service bot, then you want a very nice interface so that a, a patient, you know, well-spoken agent, but you also want them to have up-to-date knowledge. You want them to understand complex questions about the domain and be able to reason based on knowledge of that domain. Hey, what, you know, where, where, will these two parts work together? And if not, which part should I choose? Well, your, your vision there, sorry, so, uh, oh, I was just, this. yeah, please. Yeah. Well, I, I just wanted to ask this. So, I mean, your vision there seems to be kind of at odds with what I hear, at least popularly understood to be the vision for general purpose AI. And I wonder, like, based on what you're saying here, do you think that goal as an outcome to achieve general purpose AI is sort of, I don't know, a red herring in the scheme of things or... Do you think there's value or a realistic outcome with value attached to it to be found there? If if we get to general AI or AGI, often yeah. it's often called um, sure. LLMs. If we're thinking thinking just language, putting aside mm -hmm. the other multi multimodal around audio, images, and video for a moment, LLMs will almost certainly be part of that. Yeah. Okay. But but everyone loves to have a magic bullet. It makes the story so simple. Everybody wants it's to a lot more funding too. Yeah, pump pump more data in, make a bigger model, train it longer. Eventually we will cross the threshold, get to escape velocity, and launch into the solar system. But oh. <laughs> oh, the simplicity of that dream. But but the reality is the computational cost of these increasing uh, systems. I understand that right now, if you go to chat GPT. And there was a study, I'll, I'll have to track down the, the link, that tried to talk about the cost of these, of these LLMs. And they tried to, putting it in dollars or joules of electricity or whatever, just was not, it was hard to make it 
you know, comprehensible. So they decided to measure it in terms of water used. We actually and, referenced this earlier on. I think it came up in the episode was when we were talking to Thomas about because because it it came up in the news reporting about Microsoft's use of the of water in its yes. Iowa data centers, right? When exactly, they and it, it, they they did some ask the folks. These folks did an estimate mm-hmm. that, that indicated that the average query to ChatGPT consumes half a liter of water. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's like brings it home a little more. That's a lot of queries. That's a lot of water. I mean. Mm-hmm potable, clean drinking water used for that. And it attaches, so, it attaches a material reality to those, I don't know, the token use or however else you measure use of right. these systems, right? Yeah, so what, what I also liked about some of the, the references that will again point to from Thomas's episode about infrastructure was that mm-hmm. it, it revealed that we hadn't been talking about how much power does a Google search take, for example, and that uh, heavy compute, especially in NLP, is very expensive. And so even by saying, hey, this is how much water, by the way, this is X times the number, the amount of water that's needed for a Google search, which is not, which is non-zero, right? So it's important that we start thinking about this in any way that is communicable for our society, which maybe has not been thinking about water use or electricity use in our digital realm. We just, they, it just works. We pay a power bill. We don't think about the operations in the cloud. And it's, this is a, a step forward, I think, for us all to communicate more effectively about it. But I wanted to to mention one thing that Kurt had had said, which is, if LLMs are a component of a larger system that also has different heuristics that are specific to a task, one of the things that that allows is uh, traceability and replicability that are so important with new AI safety evaluation measures. And it puts the focus on using these tools in conjunction with a human. So a human can get the output of a system and say, I understand where the rationale was for their decision, and I can personally evaluate the, the relative worth of this decision versus my own uh, intuition. And I think that is going to help us use the power of this technology in areas like medicine, uh, transportation, heavily regulated areas. You're right. In plain neural networks, even if they've got lots of layers and some transformers stuck on top of them, not very explainable. The combinations of systems that you add structure to gives us a a good bit more transparency, a a little bit more explainability. And so again, these hybrid systems are just at the beginning. You see OpenAI starting to stick the layers on. And when you do that, I can imagine that as people build more of these systems to a point of being practical, explainability will be one of the things that they try to include. Not required, but you know they'll try to say, well, we, we want to understand what's going on. You can probably teach a neural network to explain itself, but that does not mean it will tell you the truth. So we have this meta problem here. Very, I, I know we don't want you to get too deep into this, but I did want to ask you, Kurt, while, while we're on the topic of explainability and transparency, what you thought of the the Stanford index that was introduced this year, that 
no, notably came up with this like large matrix for evaluating LLMs and deciding how how transparent they're being. And the the top winner in that, if you can call it a winner, on that list was Meta's Llama Two, which had a fifty four percent score, I believe it was. Uh, and I, uh-huh. I, I was just curious to know if you looked at that and if you thought that that was a fair starting point for evaluate for evaluation in these cases. I won't. All right. So there's two ways to, to look at that. The yeah. one is, is this an adequate measure of transparency? Mm-hmm. Probably not. Yeah. Well, a different way to look at it is, is there anything better in the world? Also, probably not. <laughs> this is probably the, the, the cutting edge right now. This is, yeah. we, have, we have to, you have to believe this is early days. We don't, mm-hmm. we don't know what we're, what, we don't know what we're doing yet. To, to give a um, complete reference, this, came, this is the Foundation Model Transparency Index that came from the Stanford Center for Research on Foundation Models. That is Percy Liang's uh, lab. He's a, a professor of computer science at Stanford. And so they do a lot of cutting edge work on evaluation of foundational models and systems in that space. And so they're pretty rigorous. So like I said, you know, they can't, they don't have full access to everything, the internals. So they can't, they can't know everything, but it's a good start. It's the right direction. What do you think is right about it? Yeah. I'm sorry. What'd you say? well, l- let me ask you, what, what do you think is right about what they're doing? What, what do you think it, What do you think they do get right in the general approach? So they, they take a bunch of things that are objectively measurable, you know, like how it was created, things on the outside. And they, they you know, they, this is a lot, this is, I don't want to say there's, there's not a lot of, I want to say numeric scores in this. Mm-hmm. This is a lot of like curatorial judgment of people who understand how these systems interact with the world and being able to make judgments based on that. Mm-hmm. So this is an accumulation of a lot of like uh, sophisticated domain knowledge assembled together, a lot of experts making judgments. And so, so sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so we can reference the Helm paper and some of the news that came out about that. I believe it was last month in the show notes, but I, I appreciate your your perspective on this specific work because you are involved in similar work with ML Commons, or would you describe it that way? Okay, so yes, I recently have joined ML Commons, which is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to really increase the accessibility, availability, and value for everybody in the world. It's, you know, the, the billion dollar corporations will always be able to have access, but if there's going to be, we'll say more equitable and more, you know, more diversity and innovation, the best thing would be for everybody to be able to have access and to be able to do things with it and, and to be able to use machine learning, especially at scale, practically. And so uh, ML Commons came out of a measure, ML Perf, which was a performance project on performance measures of machine learning hardware, like GPUs, for example. And 
And they established themselves as kind of a neutral third party to be able to test things so that folks could fairly measure, well, is this hardware going to, how fast is it going to be on my application? And so there are known models, known training, known tests, and then you can make a judgment based on that. It's a little bit, you know, somewhere in the spectrum of underwriter laboratories or, or consumer reports for, you know, machine learning performance on hardware. And so from that, they expanded into different areas, like different kinds of platforms like mobile and IoT and automotive and in different domains where it matters, like you know, medical or uh, uh, pure science. And so, so that people would be able to take all of these measures of performance and be able to use them ever, wherever they are working. And so that's why it's kind of, it's a lot of fun. I think it's valuable for the world. And so that, that's how we got started. You've been working there for about a year, and this is a working group for our listeners at home. This is a, a known approach to solving technical problems where you have a consortium of interested industries, as well as in this case, Stanford, I believe, is sponsoring ML Commons. Um, so this is a new effort. We'll say our, our first big project was ML Perf. And, and if you go to the website, mlcommons.org, you'll see an announcement in the blog for a new effort in AI safety testing. Now, there's a lot of AI safety topics that come up in the news. There are governments that care about it and want to ensure safety and feel like may feel like regulating. There are a lot of civic organizations, other nonprofits that are trying to understand the problem, communicate the problem, and ex help these governments help people in general figure out their priorities. What ML Commons is trying to do is something that is adjacent and complementary to most of these efforts, which is build an actual testing platform for AI safety. And that means figuring out harms, it means figuring out what the right tests are, figures out, figuring out how to practically implement those tests and figuring out how to meaningfully communicate the results of those tests. So to mitigate some of the problems that we talked about earlier, where you have uh, data sets that are being used online, that community engagement includes um, overfitting you know, reshuffling your trading and testing to a point where you're not being able to use some of these data sets for other tasks because they've been so overused in the past. This is one of the goals, correct? Absolutely. There, there are a lot, everyone who cares about this probably doesn't fully understand the full scope of all the things that can go wrong. Some of them are really important. Some are just annoying, but, but, but the reality is we, this is new. This is the wild, wide West. There's no, there is no best practices yet. There are no, you know, established standards. It's, People it's kind are of a profound statement, Kurt. Could I ask you to characterize what's at one end of the spectrum versus the other when you, when you say that? Sure. I think a, a good thing, if we want to go, very far, far end of the spectrum of like known standards and testing. Let's look at medical equipment or automobiles. Mm -hmm. yeah. Been around for a bit, many, many decades. 
the processes in place and the culture around these industries is for very, very rigorous testing, incremental improvement, very, you know, decomposition of risks into individual use cases and isolating them so they can be tested. And people want predictability, they want certainty, and it needs to be done in a way that is going to, you know, it provides trust. You do not expect your pacemaker to fail. You do not expect your car to explode as you're driving down the highway. People tend to have very high trust in these systems. People do not have that same level of trust of AI and in particular, the, the new generative models. Or perhaps they should not if they currently do. They should, they should reflect and perhaps have a little bit of um, reflection. Um, well, I mean, we've all heard the story now of the lawyer who tried to use a, a generative model to provide support for their legal case. And it synthesized, fabricated the names and titles, the titles and references for previous court cases. And this lawyer claimed to the judge, I just didn't know. I didn't check up. I, you know, he did not verify because he trusted it. He believed in it because it seemed real. And, and this, this is the, this is the, the challenge. And this is the reason that it is that LLMs are extremely challenging because they are not truth machines. They are plausibility machines. Mm-hmm. They will tell you something that sounds plausible because that's what they're done. They, that's what they're designed to do, to predict something that seems reasonable. They are not there to predict something that is true. And they're very good at predict, at generating plausibility. And so the one of the problems comes when things are so plausible that it is expensive for a human to verify. You know, model creators can say, hey, you know, don't believe this. You should go verify it yourself. But sometimes the, the mistakes and the inaccuracies, which can be impactful, are subtle enough that it requires an expert. And it requires an expert to put a bunch of time in to figuring out whether that is true or not. And time. If it, yeah, the time and, and, and expert. It makes it makes the demand on curating Google search results on Google's end seem quaint by comparison. I would think, you know. I mean, oh I yeah, search results. Yeah. You you can click a link and go to the original source, and then you can decide whether to believe it. In this mm-hmm. case, you don't get an original source. You might get mm-hmm. an answer back that that accumulated the the input from thousands of documents. You don't get links to them, and even if you did, you wouldn't be able to follow them all. So. Suddenly now you have this thing that can answer these just beautiful answers to all of your questions and, and, and it lulls you into a sense of trust because it's right a lot of the time, but when it is not right, you do not know unless you are an expert or, you know, sometimes it's obvious, but a lot of times it is not. And when it's not obvious, sometimes it can be very hard to tell. And then you get disbarred. So... Let me, let me go back to your Wild Wild West metaphor. I like this a lot. If you have the spectrum of, of opportunity, you know, things that are very regulated versus non-regulated. The Wild Wild West was very attractive to entrepreneurs, folks who took technology such as trains to new lengths, literally, in the American And hucksters who had lots of things they wanted to sell them along the road in in the towns they settled in, right? Snake oil, what have you. So 
if in that spirit of innovation, how can I let people know who are listening, how, how can I tell them to get involved? And what does involvement entail in a working group? Yeah. What responsibilities so, should the average person be taking? I think, you know, so people, uh, yeah. the average person knows so little about the technology itself. What should they do? Let me talk to Brian's question first, because that applies to most people <laughs> is, well, it's not a surprise that you should not by default believe anything you see or hear on the internet. I think most of the listeners would probably realize that that is true. So again, this is, this is cool stuff. You see videos, autom- you know, images that are generated, videos that are generated, text that is generated. You really, as a baseline, can't trust any of it. Now, this comes back to the notion of curation. You know, if you like the New York Times or a the Wall Street Journal or any, you know, any known outlet, any known publisher of information, or even your 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 favorite columnist, then you know, assuming there's just not outright fabrication, not outright, you know, like I'm I am like counterfeiting that person, which is a far, far less common then you're trusting that individual or that organization. And so that connection to others, specific others, is the way to kind of navigate through this. If you are getting your news through some aggregator and you don't, you don't even know who's publishing it, you just get a stream of headlines and you're reading the headlines. Or you get you're not, 10 mysterious photos that can't be explained and you click on it. Yes, you, yeah. you don't. Exactly. And you don't even know what it is. So... That, that is not changed in terms of like how much you should trust. It's just harder to ignore because it seems more believable. Mm-hmm. So for the average person, I just, there's just nothing you can do except, you know, you have to, like you've always had to do is go back to trusted sources. There's, yeah. there's no real substitute for that. Sure. There could be like, you know, domain hacking and somebody like, you know, hacking a website or, you know, taking over. Your, you know, the LA Times or whatever to, to and, and broadcasting their message. But that again, that's much rarer than mm-hmm. just having an anonymous news source that looks official, it looks like a news source, but it's some name, some brand you've never seen before. And it starts spewing things that are probably not trustworthy. Yeah. I appreciate that you say that as somebody who's worked in news for a long time, because I, it's, it's a conversation I've had with a lot of people who don't, I, I think, I mean, to what we're saying about what the general public appreciates and values, I think not that many people really value and understand the verification process that goes into a bigger news outlet. Not that, not to say that every news outlet has the same rigors and uh, processes, but that's one of the things I tell people all the time is, you know, if you see something at this publication, you know that X number of editors have looked at this or they have some transparent standards into number of sources, verification, et cetera. And yes, they might get something wrong 5% of the time, 3% of the time, 2% of the time, but I still have a much greater faith in seeing factual representation of something based on material realities than I do say doing a search result and synthesizing the truth of the top five, right? There's that, that I, I, told, I, told, I totally believe that. I, yeah. I, 
the one thing that, which I don't think is practical, is that if you were to read something, if it were possible to always know whether a human generated it or a model generated mm -hmm. it, that would be pretty strong, useful discriminator. Because mm -hmm. someone could be a bad journalist, but then you'd know who they know who they were. But as we've seen, a lot of publications have dabbled in using generative language models to mm -hmm. write articles for them. And sometimes they've gotten away with it and sometimes it's been disastrous. But yeah. I feel like it's a you know a race to the bottom. One of the qualities of these models is that they do not have any kind of consistent memory. They, they do not have a specific awareness of the things they have done in the past. So there's two kinds of memory in a language model. There's the short term, which is the context window, like the actual conversation that you are having at that very moment. Once it's over the next day, it's completely forgotten about that. Then, then there's very, very, very long-term memory when you're training these models, which maybe happens at often, you know, once a year and data gets updated. And then it's deeply embedded there. But what you are missing is that in-between memory of saying, hey, I remember all the conversations we've had over the past three weeks. And I remember all the articles I've written over the past three months. And those provide context. And if you're a journalist or any kind of other creator, that provides your opinion, your theme, your style. And when people read that, they interpret it and they see that that's you and they know your biases and they know what you're going to likely to get right and what you're likely to screw up. And learning about you makes it easier for someone to digest because they, 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 they learn what to pay attention to. These language models are an amalgam, a, you know, of a zillion different things, and they do not have an internal style. Maybe someday we can train them to do that, but currently no. And they don't remember what they told you last week. You may not even be using the same model. You might get in, even though it's quote the same column, if it's AI generated, different mm -hmm. models might generate it. So it might not even be the actual same generation. And so you do not have that level of like, we'll say predictability. And that's, that is one of the things that I think that if people get a sense of like, it's not quite right, if you, that's, that's what people sense, at least I do. Well, we're coming up on time, but I, I would like to know what, what your perception is of where we're at in terms of adoption and what the average person is aware of. I mean, one thing I think back on a lot is how fast we once once they took off in the public eye, search engines and social media platforms, how widely adopted they were before there was a sort of a broader connection, at least at the public level, large enough to get up to, you know, bills and regulation happening about data management and about concerns people had over, oh, what do they know about me? Things like that. Do you feel like we're on a path for a similar result down the line? with generative AI, or do you think the timing is different in this scenario? I think the timing is a little different in that it's yeah. all going to happen a lot faster. Yeah. There's already, you know, at least some cases of artists, other creators who have reasonable evidence that their work was used to train existing models. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's a point of legal ambiguity 
as to were laws broken, were there ethics, ethical lines crossed. It's not understood and it's all being worked out right now. So yes, it's all going to be very, very interesting to watch. Get your big bucket of popcorn. <laughs> but do you, th- uh, Kurt, do you think that this is going to result in a bit of a plateau? You know, you've talked historically about eras that many people have called AI winters and how in the last decade, we've had a real transition to a very powerful AI era. Do you think Um, we're going to see a plateau in the near future? I don't, I actually do not think that we're going to, we're not going to, we're not going to have a winter from this because let's, I think we should go back to like, think about the, the, was it the, the Gardner hype cycle, right? You know, new technology, ChatGPT hits, and we have this giant peak of hype of what they call it, the peak of inflated expectations. And we've hit that. And now, even though the models are getting better, we are now plummeting towards the trough of disillusionment. That will come at some point. I don't think it will last very long. In fact, maybe we're pretty close to it now where people are all worried about safety and worried about privacy and worried about copyright and worried about all these things. We are, we've hit that. We, we've seen that that's going to happen. And we absolutely have to work through all point. of that. But that's not yeah. going, to, it's not going to be magic. It's just going to be hard work. The, the, mm-hmm. These models, I will claim they are several years, maybe five to 10 years the engineering is five to 10 years ahead of the science, ahead of the math. We can build all these things, but we don't fully understand them. Even the big generative AI players still struggle to control, struggle to like make the, the outcomes be predictable. In fact, like safety filters and predictability filters are ad hoc. They're added on. They're not all built into the model. So they're, they're still trying to figure it out. So we're now in this era where I think we are starting to try to design systems that are going to be practical and use generative AI in as part of it. There's, there's a a system that's like, we'll call it, it's called rag. And it's just kind of a, imagine it's retrieval augmented generation, but think of it this way. It's really just search engines using LLMs as a tool. So you index a bunch of documents in a model you write a query, you submit that query, it puts it into a vector space and, hey, what documents are close to that query? It retrieves chunks of those and then uses an LLM to summarize them together. So you essentially use an LLM as an interface to a search engine. And on the whole web, well, that doesn't work as, as it hasn't been, you know, that's not, we're not quite there yet because that would be a very expensive thing, but for your own little internal proprietary, you know, corporate database of documents that are small and manageable, it provides a useful retrieval system and your users are well-trained often. So the, the risk of, of problems is diminished. So that's just one example. And there are dozens of companies trying to do this right now. And it's just one approach of like, let's take an LLM, build it into a larger system and add some practical value. But as I said before, these are systems that are going to be part of a larger, um, a larger whole. They will often leverage older systems, symbolic systems, all the things we know how to build reliably. And then that brings us up in our hype cycle from the trough of disillusionment to the 
we'll call it the it's the slope of enlightenment. And so we're somewhere somewhere in that space, depending on where you are. And you know, we will get to this plateau of productivity, but then all the sexiness will be gone. It'll just be, yep, it's just one more thing that we have. Just like no no one thinks of social media as sexy anymore. It's just it's, kids running away from the previous platform that their parents were on. Yeah. It's just a tool, but it's a very powerful tool. And I actually I look forward to this plateau because I do think that, as you noted, enterprise search is holy grail. There's going to be a ton of funding dollars chasing that. Large language model technology is great at generating text, images. It's also fantastic at retrieval. And, you know, it might not be as entertaining to the the chat GPT user, you know, this new, the democratizing force of OpenAI's tools, which have introduced new users to the space, but we'll see LLMs boringly be introduced to all of our productivity tools and it will be great. <laughs> so I, I, one thing I would, I would suggest you watch, look at the companies right now that are actually paying attention to reliability and safety from mm -hmm. the beginning. There was, I mean, everyone is paying lip service to it now, mm -hmm. but, but we're, we're seeing a number of companies that are specifically, you know, touting safety features or at least their attempts. I don't think anybody has it right yet, but some people are taking it more seriously than others. And I, I won't name names, but I'll say that I kind of believe that those who take the reliability, take safety more seriously in the long term, they are going, and when I say long term, I mean like 10 years, not 50. They are the ones that are going to be at an advantage because they will build systems that are trustworthy sooner. I agree. So if people are interested in this space, how can they get involved? So I would say I'll, I'll do a little plug for ML Commons now and say we do have this AI safety working group that is trying to build a platform for safety testing. If you would love to make a safety test, if you are a researcher in anywhere in this area or somewhat adjacent, there's a lot of work to do. We, there's a lot of folks with, you know, a diverse set of opinions, but we really need people who just want to roll up their sleeves and actually build things. Excellent. We'll add a link to both ML Commons and give a little information on working group participation. Yeah, no. we will. Look Thank for it in the show notes, everybody. That's it for this week's episode of the AI Artifacts podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope that you'll visit us on AIartifacts.net. There, you can subscribe to our Substack show notes newsletter and discuss anything you just heard. If you like what we're doing, we'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast and rate us on your platform of choice. The show is produced by Brian Wormuth and Sarah Luger. Our visual design work is from Corey Scarin and Scarin Design. The music on the show is from Vanishing Horizon by Jason Shaw and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 United States license.